scripture this morning. We're in the book of Acts, chapter 10. Book of Acts, chapter 10 this morning. We're looking at verses 36 through 48 from Acts chapter 10. Continuing our journey through the book of Acts. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Acts chapter 10, verses 36 through 48. I have no idea what that is. Oh, sorry. That's okay. Things like that happen. (laughs) All right. Start in verse 36. This morning from Acts chapter 10. Actually, we're going to start in verse 34 instead of verse 36. So Peter opened his mouth and said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears Him and does what is right is acceptable to him. As for the word that he sent to Israel preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death, hanging him on a tree. But God raised him on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word. The believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles. For they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And then Peter declared, Can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. And then they asked him to remain for some days. What we have recorded in these verses is the first message ever preached specifically to the Gentiles by an apostle. It is the message that shows the door of salvation is open to all people of the world. The most important question that anyone could, could ever ask or even answer is how can I be saved? It is sad that even among Christians that there are different answers to that question. 
There are those that believe all that matters in someone's life is sincerity. And what you believe doesn't really matter as long as you are sincere. However, you can be sincerely wrong. Others think that in order to be saved, you just have to be a good person. Try your hardest, do your best, and you will get to heaven. Let's be clear that Scripture teaches that we are saved by grace alone, which is God's undeserved favor through Christ alone, completely apart from any good works that we might be able to do. Now, sometimes we think that the notorious sinner has to clean up his act before coming to Christ. But let's again be clear that God's grace is free and God saves whomever he wishes to save. Now, Peter and the other apostles knew that salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. They knew it wasn't by our good works or efforts. However, up until now, they had also believed that to be right with God, a pagan Gentile had to become a Jew in the sense of obeying the Jewish laws regarding circumcision and ceremonial issues. They could not fathom a Gentile getting saved apart from Judaism. As we looked at last week, God had been breaking Peter's prejudice down this whole time. And today we see they are all of his prejudices are swept away in an instant. For 2,000 years, salvation was from the Jews and through the Jews, but not anymore. What we will clearly see is that salvation is for all who believe. The first thing that we notice as we look through this passage of Scripture is that salvation has nothing to do with our identity or our works. Salvation has nothing to do with our identity or our works. Peter starts off by saying that God does not show partiality. And then he says, but in every nation, key words there, every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. Plain and simple, Peter is saying that God does not show favoritism based on where you are from. It doesn't matter what nation you are from. God does not show favoritism. God does not play favorites. Man often plays favorites. But Peter says it's not so with God. God doesn't play favorites. He shows no partiality or discrimination. He does not accept a person because of their nationality or their race or their social standing or their class. God does not favor someone because of who they are, what they do, or what they have. Person or appearance, possession or position, abilities or works, health or stature, these things do not make a person acceptable to God. God is no respecter of persons. This was implicit in the teaching of the early prophets. They insisted that God's choice of Israel was an act of grace, not a partiality, and that is called uh, that it called for a response of their obedience to God, not of careless complacency in their life. But now God is doing something new. God's grace is being expanded. Peter has come to this radical conclusion that God is not partial to anyone on the basis of their nationality. Now Gentiles can know and experience the grace of God apart from becoming a Jew. 
Now, what I want us to understand, and I think it's at times difficult for us to understand, especially in America, but we have to, like Peter, understand that God does not show partiality. In other words, there are people from every racial and national background that are on the exact same footing as we are when it comes to receiving the gospel of Jesus Christ. They don't have to be Americanized in order to become Christians. They can keep their cultural traditions that do not violate Scripture and that are not sinful. They can sing songs that fit their culture. They can dress in their cultural dress. They, they don't have to change. Church, to become a Christian is not to become American. To become a Christian is to become like Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now in verse 35, Peter makes this statement that anyone who fears him and does what is right, and some would think that Peter is speaking of good works, but he's not. However, he instead is recognizing that Cornelius was a man that was someone who was God-fearing and did do good works. And now Peter is there to share the gospel with him. These good works and the fact that Cornelius fears God didn't save Cornelius. Peter is there to explain the way of salvation to Cornelius. What we have laid out for us is to show us how Cornelius came to salvation in these verses. He comes to salvation because God is first working in his life. And that is evidenced by his fear of God and his good deeds. God had put a hunger in Cornelius to know him more. And he began to seek him not on his own accord, but because God had placed it there in the first place. And he can't be saved until he hears the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see, first of all, that salvation has nothing to do with our identity or our works. And Peter's making that abundantly clear. Secondly, we see this. Salvation's focus is on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Salvation's focus is on the person and work of Jesus Christ. Now that might be odd to say. Some people might go, well, duh. Well, yeah, it's about Jesus. But I believe the message that Peter gives to Cornelius is vital. And there are several things that we want to, to look at here under this heading very plainly salvation is all about Christ and what Christ has done and not what we do or can do because quite frankly you and I can do nothing because we're dead and our trespasses and sin there's nothing that we can do it's all about Jesus Christ and Peter makes that abundantly clear in his message to Cornelius. First, we see that God takes the initiative in salvation. Look at verse 36. As for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching good news of peace through Jesus Christ, it says. As for the word that he sent, who is the he? The he is God. God initiates sending the gospel. As we see here, he initiates the way of peace that is found only through his son that he sent to this earth to bear our sins. And that person is Jesus Christ. Why does Jesus preach peace? That is what the text says. The reason he preaches peace is because there is hostility and alienation 
between sinful man and a holy God. Here's the thing, church. Many in the world today are oblivious to the fact that God is absolutely holy. Absolutely holy. And God hates all sin. We run around thinking that we're basically good people. And that we'll just hopefully get into heaven because, well, we're just not that bad of a person. And perhaps compared to the nastiest criminal, we are a good person. Perhaps compared to the most vilest person that we can think of, we think in our own minds that we surely are a good person. But you see, there's a flaw with that because it doesn't matter what you think in your own mind. Because your own mind is not the standard. And we, we tend to think, well, I'm a good person. And we compare ourselves to the guy down the street or, or this guy over here or that guy, that person. Back, well, I'm a good person compared to that person. But we don't get the opportunity to compare ourselves to that person. Because our comparison is to God's holy standard. And when we line ourselves up, with God's holy standard, we are closer to Hitler than we are to Jesus Christ. We are sinful. And we don't hear that anymore. We don't hear that we are infinitely sinful. We don't hear that God hates sin. It can't even be in the presence. He hates sin so much that He took and poured His wrath on His Son. He hates sin. And so in a world where we just wink at sin, God hates it. And yet He still took the initiative. Scripture is clear that everyone has sinned. Everyone's fallen short of God's holy standard. And if we are guilty of breaking only one law, we are guilty of breaking the whole law of God. And anyone that thinks that they are righteous enough to enter into God's holy presence is sadly mistaken. There's hostility between sinful man and God. And the world doesn't even realize it. And Christ is the only means by which we can experience peace. The only way you or I or anyone else can experience peace with God is if His anger towards us is put away and replaced by peace. And that can only come through Jesus Christ because Jesus is the peacemaker. But not only that, not only do we see that God takes the initiative in salvation, but we see as we just sang that Jesus is Lord of all. Jesus is not just Lord of the Jews, but he's Lord of all. And when God decided to send a message to his rebellious subjects, he didn't just send some little errand boy. He sent the Lord of all. That is who Jesus is. He's not the Lord of some, but He's the Lord of all. He's not the Lord of the Jews only, or even the Gentiles only, or even of Cornelius only. He is the Lord of all. The Lord over everything. He is the Lord of angels and the Lord of demons. They hear His voice and they shudder. He is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is the universal ruler of all things. He's not just a prophet. He's not just some sort of deity. He's not just a great teacher. He is the Lord of this universe and He's the Lord of everything 
in it. He is Lord of all. I've said it once, and I'll say it again, that we may elect a commander-in-chief, and we may elect a president, but there is only one Lord, and His name is Jesus Christ. And one day, every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess Him, not as a great man, but they will confess Him as Lord of Lords. He is Lord of all, church. And Peter makes it clear. But not only that, as Peter goes on to show us that salvation is all of Jesus Christ, he says, Jesus is anointed with the Holy Spirit and power. Verse 38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. Peter is making it clear that Jesus, who is Lord of all, was also a man. This is why he identifies him as Jesus of Nazareth. He had a place that was his hometown. He had friends. He worked in the carpenter shop. The Lord of all was a human, just like you and I, yet he was sinless. In his humanity, he showed us how to live totally dependent on God. He was anointed with the Holy Spirit and power, just like we need to be. Peter closes out this verse by saying this, for God was with him. The point is, Peter is making is not that Jesus was not God, but that he is showing that as a man, Jesus relied on God. The Lord of all humbled himself and he became a servant and he lived his life by the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit relying on God. And so should we. But not only that, Peter goes on. Not only do we see that he's anointed with the Holy Spirit and with power. But Peter goes on to show us that Jesus is more powerful than sin and Satan. Again, verse 38, he says this. He went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed by the devil. For God was with him. Jesus walked with God. He had perfect intimacy with the Father. And God the Father was with him. Jesus did what was good. The scripture says he didn't do bad things. Was Jesus tempted? Yes, he was. He was tempted just like we are. However, he never once gave into that temptation. He was stronger than sin. But not only that, but because of the presence and fellowship of God in him, he conquered the devil. There's a cosmic battle between God and Satan, but Jesus is stronger because Jesus rescues people from the oppression that Satan puts them under. The same holds true today. When the Holy Spirit comes, he comes to make Jesus the, the deliverer of any satanic oppression that's in your life because Jesus is more powerful than sin or Satan. Satan doesn't have a grip on your life as a believer. Jesus does. And he is more powerful than sin and Satan. Peter goes on. And he says that Jesus was put to death on the cross. Jesus was put to death on the cross. Jesus paid the debt that you and I deserve. Jesus was the means by which God made peace between himself and sinners. And in spite of the fact that he came as a peacemaker. And in spite of the fact that he came as Lord of all. And in spite of the fact that he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And in spite of the fact that he's stronger than sin and Satan and walked with God. And in spite of all of that, 
he was killed. And church, as you sit and think, and as you ponder Scripture, and as we read through Scripture, and we read who Jesus was, and we read all that Jesus did, there's only one possible explanation for the death of Jesus Christ. On the cross. And that is this. That God willed it. And sin caused it. God willed it. And sin caused it. God willed it in that it was the only way for peace to come between him and sinful man. It was the only way that we could be right with God. God willed it. And sin caused it in that God took our sin, your sin and my sin, and he laid it on Jesus Christ, the sacrificial lamb who had no sin of his own. We look at the cross, this horrendous act, and we have to say God willed it and sin caused it because he is God. His death has infinite value. And because he is man, His death is the perfect substitute for the sin of all humanity. But Peter doesn't stop. He could have stopped there. But he goes on. We see that God raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. If Jesus had died and remained in the grave... His death would not have been sufficient... Jesus is alive because God did not abandon him, but instead God raised him up. God sustained his resurrection by making him visible to, or substantiated his resurrection by making him visible to certain chosen witnesses, is what Peter says. He says, we ate and drank with him to show the reality of his resurrection, to prove it was not some sort of spiritual resurrection, but it was real. It was a real physical resurrection. This is the risen Lord, the very one who Peter said is the Lord of all. And God raised him up and vindicated his name by giving him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. Jesus is risen and alive. He's alive today. He's not in the grave. He is risen and alive. And then Peter makes this profound statement that Jesus is the final judge of the living and the dead. Peter says in verse 42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one ordained by God to be judge of the living and the dead. Peter says that he was commanded to preach to the people and to testify. And part of what he is commanded to preach and testify is that Jesus is ordained by God to judge both the living and the dead. Oh, that we would grasp this. Every single one of us will stand before Christ, the judge, just as surely as I'm standing here right now, we will stand before Jesus as judge. 
And when we stand before Jesus as judge, we stand before him barren and stripped of everything that we are. When we stand before Jesus as judge, money does not matter. Possessions will not matter. Power does not matter. How cool we look makes no difference. Or how we think we are does not matter. None of it matters, church. When we stand before Jesus as judge, when we stand before him, he will decide our eternal fate. And what he decides in that moment hinges on what we decide now. You will either be justly condemned for all your sin and sent to an everlasting torment in hell, or you will be pardoned and sent to everlasting joy in heaven. You say, well, what's the difference? How does someone end up in heaven as opposed to hell? And Peter answers the question. He says, he goes on, and says that Jesus is the source of forgiveness for our sin. Jesus is the source of forgiveness for our sin. Peter says that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sin through his name. For all who believe. Listen, before you meet Jesus as judge, you can meet him as forgiver of your sins. If you believe in him, you receive forgiveness of sin and be pardoned. And when you stand before him as judge, if you trust him with your life as Lord of all, as God's anointed one filled with power, trusting that he is stronger than sin and Satan, trusting him with your life that he died and rose again and he is living today, trust him as a one who judges both the living and the dead. Trust him to forgive you of your sins. You will be with him forever. This is Christ. This is the focus of salvation. It is fully understood in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is never about you or what you can do, but it is always about what he has done. And so I ask you this morning, do you know this Jesus that Peter has described for us? Because before Peter is even done, before he's even finished, Saying what he has come to say. The Holy Spirit falls. And the Jews are amazed that the Holy Spirit came to the Gentiles. And Peter says, what's preventing these people from baptism? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Do you know him? Do you know this Jesus you see, church, it doesn't matter how long you've gone to church. It doesn't matter if you've been baptized or not. It, I, I don't care if you've gone to church since you were knee-high to a grasshopper and all your life you went to church. None of that matters if you've never received Jesus as your Savior. That's what it's about. I've known men that have been deacons most of their life and not know Jesus. I was a pastor and didn't even know Jesus. It's not about what you can do because we can do nothing. It's about what He has done. Do you know this Jesus? I want to close this morning by bringing up three points 
about this salvation for us this morning. First is, as God's witnesses, as God's witnesses, we are to proclaim salvation. Two times Peter repeats this phrase, we are witnesses. We are witnesses in verse 39 and in verse 41. And then in verse 42, Peter says that we were ordered by Jesus to preach. And then in verse 33, he says, all the prophets bear witness. Now, here's the point I want to drive home, church. If God has saved us from our sin, if God has saved us from our sin, if you are here this morning and you say, I'm a saved individual, I've repented, I've confessed Christ as my Savior, I know that if I died today, I would go to heaven. If God has saved you from your sin, then He has also appointed you to be a witness to others of that salvation. The truth is, God could use any means that He wants to in order to spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the truth. He could do, he could write it in the sky if he wanted to. He could make animals go around talking, giving the, giving the salvation story. He could do whatever he wants in order to proclaim salvation because he is God. But he chooses to use you and me to spread it. What a responsibility, church. He, he's God. He can do whatever he wants. But he says, I want you want you to spread my message. And so I'd say that as God's witnesses, you and I, as God's witnesses, we are to be proclaiming the gospel of salvation, that you and I are to be telling others about salvation. I, I didn't say tell them about your church. That's great. If you want to talk about your church, great. Invite people to church. Tell them about church. But that's not salvation. Tell them about salvation. Tell them about what you've experienced. Tell them how God has come into your life and made you a new creation. That you are to be a witness of salvation. As God's witnesses, we are to proclaim salvation. And then, salvation is for everyone who believes. Salvation is for everyone who believes. I know we just touched on this, but I want to expand on it a little bit. First off, salvation has nothing to do with being a good person. Cornelius was a good person, but he still needed to hear about Jesus and put his trust in him. Because as Peter proclaimed back in Acts chapter 4 verse 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This simply means that salvation is found only in Christ and not through anyone else. Salvation is not found by following a particular religion or a particular set of rules. Salvation is not found by being a good Hindu or a good Muslim or a good Buddhist or a good Mormon or a good Jehovah's Witness or even a good Catholic. It is not found by being a good American. It is found only in Christ, apart from personal faith 
in Jesus Christ. There is no salvation, but there is salvation for everyone who believes. That's what it says. This is not some sort of vague general belief, but it's a specific and personal belief. It is to believe that he is Lord of all, that he gave himself on the cross for your sin. Salvation is for all who believe, not based on merit, but based on God's grace. And to believe means that I'm not relying on myself to get to God, but rather I trust in what Jesus did on the cross and I trust For God to be in control of all of my life. Salvation is for everyone who believes. Everyone, everywhere. And lastly, I want to say about this salvation is this. There's evidence of salvation. There's evidence of salvation. I really believe that this point needs to be driven home today. Because we live in a world that says that you can somehow have an encounter with the God of this universe and nothing changes in your life. That somehow, do we understand that that's an absolute denial of the power of God? Do we really fathom that when we say that, yeah, you can, you can, make, you can make a decision for Christ and the Holy Spirit, who is part of the Trinity, who is part of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, He comes and takes up residence in your life. That's what happens at salvation. Do we really understand that when we say that the Holy Spirit comes in and takes up residence in your life and nothing is changed in your life, do we really understand that is a denial of the power of God? If we believe that, we're denying that God is powerful. But yet we proclaim that often in Christian circles. Oh, that person, yeah, they're saved. But there's no, there's no evidence of salvation, but they, they said a prayer one time. Big deal. Show me that in the Bible. Show me where, oh, you said this special cool little prayer and little fairy dust got sprinkled on your head and suddenly you're, you're eternally secure. That's not what happens. It's not what Scripture teaches at all. That's what America teaches. That's not what Scripture teaches. There's evidence of salvation. That's what Scripture teaches us. Peter didn't even finish. And the people responded. He was just getting started and God intervenes and everyone gets saved. Let's quickly look at the evidence of salvation from this account. First, they received the Holy Spirit. Ever since Pentecost, which we looked at at the beginning of the book of Acts, the Holy Spirit immediately indwells a believer at salvation. Now, this is not something that we necessarily feel, but it is a fact that God's word declares to us. Now, because the Holy Spirit indwells all believers, that means that over time, as believers, we will walk by the Spirit and the deeds of the flesh will diminish in our life. And the fruit of the Spirit will increase in our life, therefore making the Spirit's presence in someone's life evident. We begin to walk 
by the fruits of the Spirit. Now that's not to say that you're not going to see lust of the flesh in someone's life. But I'm saying in someone's life, when it is the lust of the flesh that is predominant in, the, in their life, don't you tell me that they're controlled by the Spirit, because they're not. They're not. We want to say, oh, well, they, they're saved. But that's not, again, what Scripture teaches. I think we say that to make our own conscience feel better. Because we don't want to we don't want to call someone out. We don't want to say, well, I don't know, brother. I don't know, sister. Your life doesn't show that you're walking by fruits of the spirit. Oh, 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 no, that's being judgmental. I think scripture is clear, church. It's clear. That the Holy Spirit indwells you. You will live by the fruits of the Spirit. And this is why it's disheartening when we claim certain people are believers who have never evidenced the fruit of the Spirit in their life ever. If someone is a believer, it will be evidenced by the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't have any fruit, then you don't have the Spirit. It's plain and simple. Not only did they receive the Holy Spirit, but they spoke in an unlearned foreign language. Now, as we have said before, this is not the norm. In other words, speaking in tongues is not evidence of salvation. But in this case, it is God giving the sign to the Gentiles so that the Jewish Christians would recognize that the Gentiles were on equal ground with them. That's why they're astonished. They cannot believe that the Spirit has descended upon these Gentiles just like it descended on them on the day of Pentecost. And they're, they're amazed. And it's God saying, look, I come on them just like I came on you. But it's still evidence of salvation. And then they're baptized. Water baptism is an outward sign, outward profession of what God has done spiritually. It follows salvation, but is not salvation. In all likelihood, Peter probably allowed the Jews that were traveling with him to assist in baptizing these Gentiles. Every person who has come to faith in Christ should obey him by being baptized. If you've not been baptized and you say you have faith in Christ, then I would challenge you this morning that you follow up with believer's baptism. It is your step of obedience. And lastly, and crucially, they desire to grow in their faith. Do you notice the very last verse of Acts chapter 10? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they asked him to remain for some days. They ask them to stick around. They want to be instructed in their faith. Everyone who is truly saved will desire to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Like newborn babies, we will long for the milk of the word that by it we may grow in respect to salvation if we have tested the kindness of the Lord. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. When the Holy Spirit enters our life, we have this desire to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. That's why it amazes me when, when somebody's a Christian they have, and they, they supposedly have no desire to grow in their faith. They don't want to study the Word. They don't want to read the Word. They don't want to, they don't want to hear sermons. They don't want to grow in their faith. 
Scripture seems to clearly indicate that we should desire to grow in our faith if the Holy Spirit is in our life. How do we apply this to our life? How do we apply these verses to our life? First, you can't live a life for God until you receive life from God. Salvation doesn't come to anyone through their efforts, through their nationality, or through any other means. Everyone needs the forgiveness that Jesus offers. And we will all meet Jesus one day. The question is, will you meet him as judge or you meet him as savior? We will all stand before him. And he offers salvation to all who believe. So this morning, the question is, will you trust him with your life? If you don't know Christ, will you trust him? That's how you apply this to your life. Will you trust him with your life? There's a second way that we apply this this morning. And that's this, that as God's witnesses, we are called to proclaim salvation. So very simply, I would ask you, are you proclaiming salvation? Are you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, someone who says, I'm saved. I've placed my faith in Christ. Very simply, are you proclaiming that salvation? Or are you just content to just keep doing what you're doing and hope it all works out? Are you proclaiming that salvation? Is there evidence the fruit of the Spirit in your life, are you proclaiming that salvation this morning? Perhaps the Lord has spoken to you this morning. Perhaps you would reflect on your life and you would say, I'm not, I'm not proclaiming that salvation. Yeah, I, I came to Christ, but, but I'm not proclaiming that salvation. At least not like I should be. And, and maybe, maybe you want to pray. Maybe you want to pray up here. Maybe you just want to pray in your pew. That's fine. I'll be standing down front. I'd love to pray with you if you want to do that. But also, maybe you're here this morning and you would say, I don't, I don't know Jesus. That, that Jesus that, that, that Peter talked about, I don't know him. I don't. I've been in, maybe you've been in church. Maybe you've not been in church long. But maybe you don't know. Maybe you've never placed your faith in Jesus Christ. This morning, you'd you'd like to know more about that. Again, I'll be standing down front. Just come and grab my hand and say, I want to know more about Jesus. I'd love to talk with you later on. But if the Lord's spoken to you this morning and telling you to respond, would you be willing to respond this morning here in just a moment when we sing a song? I'll be down front. You'd be willing to respond. Let's go ahead and close a prayer this morning.